During World War II, Operation Cobra was the code name for an offensive that was, lost, that was launched by the 1st United States Army uh, about seven weeks after D-Day. And it was part of the Normandy campaign. And on July 25, 1944, uh, 1,800 bombers from the U.S. 8th Air Force were called in to bomb uh, the Germans in support of the American troops. So they called in this massive uh, bombing raid, 1,800 bombers. It was a clear day, and despite the request from 1st Army Commander Omar Bradley, he specified that in order to uh, not be allied casualties, he specified to the bombing raid should go from east to west. But for whatever reason, the air commanders uh, made their attack from north to south instead. Bombs fell into U.S. positions, and 111 Allied troops were killed. 490 were injured, including Lieutenant General Leslie McNair, the highest-ranking victim of American friendly fire. There are other occurrences of friendly fire that have happened in warfare. Uh, on one occasion, during a conflict between uh, the, the British, uh, there was a have a battle with them and dealing with uh, the island or the Cyprus, and there's a conflict there. And there were two British uh, units, one from the north and one from the south. And it was there was a lot of fog. They were unable to see each other, and they believed that they were being surrounded by the enemy fighters. And they engaged uh, each other in an eight-hour firefight the northern British fighting the southern British uh, forces. It involved airstrikes, artillery, bombardments, heavy weapons uh, for eight hours, resulting in 250 casualties. It was 127 deaths, making it actually the deadliest firefight incident of, uh, this, of that conflict. According to one source that I looked at, that between uh, fatal and non-fatal, 21% of the casualties in World War II were attributed to friendly fire. 39% of the casualties in Vietnam and 52% in the first Gulf War and high amounts also in recent conflicts. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 9. We're going to be looking at 46 through, excuse me, 49 through 56 today. We're going to Start, though, with the uh, first section here. We will read uh, the first two verses. We'll do this in two halves. Let's read 49 through 50. We'll see how this ties in. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. There's another section of Scripture we'll read after this, but let's look at this first part first. And the main point that we'll take away from this has to do with this issue of friendly fire. And I think one lesson we can learn from this is, to, is don't inflict friendly fire against people that are actually on your same team. People that are actually on the same side with you. 
And that's what was going on here. You had the, uh, the apostles. And yes, they were, they were commissioned by Jesus. They were sent out with authority. He commissioned them to be uh, doing miracles, to be casting out demons. And there were times when they were successful. There was a time we saw a few, a few weeks ago in chapter 9 where they were unsuccessful and uh, Jesus had to step in and be the one to, to cast a, a demon out of a boy. But here... Uh, John says they noticed that, well, they saw this other person doing it, and he wasn't from their group. He didn't seem to have the same uh, group authorization, and he was uh, casting out uh, demons in Jesus' name. And it's hard to know if John here thinks that Jesus is going to be happy with what he did. Say, good, I'm glad you stopped him. I'm glad you put the kibosh on that because he wasn't one that, I, that was, had the same authorization as you to, to go out and do this. But instead, Jesus tells John, no, it's, you shouldn't have done that. And he says, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is, is for you. So even though they're not maybe part of that same little group, but they're still a part of the, the same big overall team. Now, also, when we think about this, I, I think we need to balance this that the opposite is also true. Because a little bit later on, in Luke eleven twenty three, Jesus would say, whoever is not with me is against me. So, I mean, if you put those two together, it means you, you basically have two, two opposing sides. You have those that are, that are with Jesus, and you have those that are against Jesus. And there really isn't this, this middle ground. There isn't this neutral territory. Either people are with him or they're against him. It says, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. No middle ground. You're either on one team or the other. But the point here is don't work against people that are on the same team. And we can say one of the things we need to remember is that someone can be in another group but actually on the same team. So if our goal is to glorify Jesus, if our goal is to serve God and to bring people to Jesus Christ, we need to recognize that we are not the only ones that can be doing this. That it's not just First Baptist Church of Middleville or maybe other churches that are just exactly like us. That there might be others that um, believe the Bible, that have a, a gospel message, that they're clear on that. And if we see other churches, if we see other individuals that are, that are bringing people to Jesus Christ, that are doing genuine good in Jesus' name, preaching the truth, should we be envious of that or should we be happy because our goal is, ultimately, is we want to see Jesus Christ glorified. We want to see uh, people brought to salvation, brought into to God's greater kingdom, the, the church. And that's part of the, the message here that Jesus is trying to get across to, uh, to John and that he has for us here today. There are Christians, we see others in, in, in Bible-believing churches. We should be glad for them. We need to remember that it's, it's not other Christians that are the enemy. We do have an enemy, don't we? And who is the enemy? The enemy is, is Satan. And no matter what, you take all the, the, the solid Bible-believing churches that are in an area, and the sad thing is, Satan's church is, is still bigger than all of us. And so that is the enemy that we're working against. That is the one that, that we're trying to... Uh, steal people away from is from, from Satan's uh, congregation and to bring them into, into God's kingdom with Jesus Christ. 
So sometimes, yeah, we have a competitive spirit, and we need to remind ourselves that when uh, that it, other Christians can be doing good things in Jesus' name, and this is something that we should take, we should be happy that Jesus, if he is receiving the glory. Now, this can be the same, let's say, another application. I mean, the disciples here, maybe they felt that well, this was kind of stopping on their little personal ministry. You know, they thought, well, it's great that we get to cast out demons, we get to do these things. And maybe there's another application that we can have, maybe even within the same church. That sometimes we say, well, I have my little area of specialty. And it can be hard sometimes, you know, if we see somebody else that is maybe doing some of the things that maybe we used to do or we're known to do. And there's that little sinful, corrupt part of our human nature uh, that, can, that can resist that. You ever have a time where that corrupt part of our human nature kind of secretly wants someone else to kind of fail? So it doesn't take the, the spotlight away from us. You know, we want, we want their special music to be not, not, not quite as good. We want their, their teaching to be not quite as good. Their cookies that they bring, you know, not quite as fresh as the cookies that we bring. You know, we don't want them to outright fail, but there, I mean, there's a part of us that's in our heart, and we need to check on that because that's part of our corrupt human nature that this oftentimes happens. And it's, a, it's an issue of envy that we can all have. And I think... One great thing to ask ourselves is to ask, whose glory am I really after? I mean, that's a way to do a heart check on this. That is, if it's about Jesus Christ being glorified, people coming to know him, then whether it comes through, through you or your group, your church, your, your uh, study, your ministry, your influence one-on-one with them or from someone else, the main thing you're hoping for is that Jesus Christ is glorified. Yeah, maybe there's someone that you have been praying for and witnessing to, you know, for, for 10 years. And then someone else comes along and shares the gospel with them and their life has changed. Are you sad then that somebody else got the privilege of walking that person to Jesus Christ and, and praying with them? Or are you just happy that this person knows Jesus now? And that their eternity is going to be with, with God forever rather than in the lake of fire eventually? Whose glory are we after? We always need to be doing that heart check. Is it about me being glorified or about Jesus Christ being glorified? You know, John the Baptist had a great attitude expressed in John chapter 3. He said, He, Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. Now, are we willing to, to have that attitude? Now, let me give some clarifications too. Because I think there are ways that, you know, a passage like this and some of these principles... Uh, could be misunderstood, that we could take the wrong way. And I think it is also good to remind ourselves that, that some differences do matter more than others. Okay? So I, it would be wrong to walk away from this thinking that, well, it doesn't matter what people believe. It doesn't matter, you know, what kind of church or what kind of ministry. There are differences that do matter. But I think we need to learn how to, uh, how to distinguish between different levels of, of beliefs of practices, styles, and say which ones really matter and which ones are not a big deal. And I think there are Christians that have made the mistake on one side or the other side. And I'll I'll suggest that we can think of things in maybe three different levels as far as different beliefs. So if you want to put it this way, there are are first-order beliefs. There, There are level one beliefs. And these are the type of things that you need to believe this in order to be a legitimate Christian. In order to be saved, there's things uh, 
I'm not going to give you an exhaustive list, but certain things about God himself, that we believe there's one God. There's not many, many gods. We believe there's one God, and he exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So the, the Trinity, we believe that Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, that salvation comes by what Jesus Christ did for us, and it's received by, by grace alone, that it's given to us by grace alone. And we receive it by faith, with faith alone. So there are certain key things about the gospel message that these are, these are level one issues where if we are not united on these things, it's hard to have any type of real unity. You can say there's also level two. And these would be things where someone could still be, a, they're a Christian, they could be our brothers and sisters in Christ, but these are the type of issues that they're, they're still important. And it would make it difficult to really to do church together in the long run. And there are some things that are like that. Uh, there are issues, do you baptize infants or do you wait until they're believers? Maybe different issues on spiritual gifts. I mean, if, it'd be very difficult to be in the same church, especially if you are um, in, in leadership or getting really involved, if one person thinks that the secret to being spiritual is, is speaking in tongues and everybody should do that. And others think, well, that's not the case or that's not even something that uh, God gives after the uh, foundational era of the church. And there's more things that we could list and some of them are more important, some of them are less important. That's kind of that level two where, yes, brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, and we can still be glad for good things that are going on if people are coming to Christ because that's the most important thing. But there are also issues that, yeah, I have uh, friends, I have relatives. I can go and worship with them for a while, but it would be difficult to be involved there long term. It would be difficult to, to do that. Then there's also level three. I say level three are things where you can have differences, but you can be in the same church and it's okay. You know, that doesn't mean that these things don't matter at all, but some of them are not really that big of a deal, Okay. I mean, if we're talking about the, the book of Revelation and who is, uh, you know, the two witnesses, is that, um, is that Elijah and Moses coming back? Or Elijah and Enoch, you know, oh, you think it's Enoch, you heretic. Or is it two people we can't know? I mean, there are people that will, you know, nitpick on things. And to them, this is as important as the, the gospel, okay? So we, part of the key, and this isn't a message to tell you exactly what category everything's in, but just to recognize that there are three different levels, and part of it is trying to figure out where are these differences. Some differences matter more than others. And the mistake that some make, some, that, some people that give fundamentalists a bad name, okay? And I technically, I'm a fundamentalist because I believe the fundamentals of the faith. But there's some that make everything, even the smallest detail, into a first-order uh, category, so no matter what it is, but not everything is that case. Um, you, things about music, things about what translation. I mean, there's some people that you better have the right translation or this, this is a first-order issue. Well, no, I preach out of the ESV. You're welcome to be here with a different translation. That's, that's fine. On the other end, you have some you know, liberals or others that just want to have such lowest common denominator that they say almost everything is third order, that it really doesn't matter. So, 
recognize that there are some differences that matter more than others. And so if we think about what unites us or what divides us, I think one bit of wisdom that I heard once, um, when I was in college and for a while after that, I worked for uh, the ministry of uh, Erwin Lutzer, pastor of Moody Church in Chicago. I know some of you have heard him uh, on the radio or read his books. And I remember he said one time, he said, if what unites us is the gospel, then that which unites us is greater than what could ever divide us. But, what if, but if what divides us is the gospel, then that which divides us is greater than what could ever unite us. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, we face a lot of social issues that are out there. We see a lot of things where uh, things are deteriorating in the world. Uh, there's people that are uh, outright against uh, Christians, especially if you have, you have uh, more conservative views on different things. And so sometimes the, uh, the, the temptation is to just brush aside doctrinal things and say we're, we have to just completely unite um, because we have to fight these, these social issues. Francis Schaeffer, years ago, I think he gave some wise advice. He says, for people that if we don't have the same gospel, if we don't have the same core beliefs, these first order things, he said we can be co-belligerents with them against the, the evil forces in the world, but we're not really partners with them in the same way that we can be with people that we share the same gospel message. So co-belligerents, we're both fighting against the same, the same foe, but what has to unite us is the gospel message. I think another point that application we can get from this first uh, section here is to also realize that not all Christian ministry needs to be officially organized by the local church. Sometimes we tend to think that absolutely everything that we have to do has to be you know, ran through the church, that we have to have some kind of committee that does this. And so we'll have a good idea for uh, some way to help the community or some, uh, it might be something spiritual, it might be uh, something more just a good deeds. And we think, well, we, we better get a church committee to do this and a team and it better have a line item. Sometimes that can be the case. But let me, say, let me suggest that probably a lot or most of the good that you're going to do doesn't have to come through an official thing that is organized by the church. I mean, you have people at your workplace. We don't need to uh, organize you know, a mission group from here to go to your workplace to, to uh, witness to your coworkers or to family members. I mean, part of what we do here on Sundays and on Wednesdays is we're training and equipping everyone here, to go out and as we disperse as Christians to be fulfilling individual callings that you have. It's still, in one sense, the church, but it's not the, the organized church, us doing this. And yeah, there's some things that we can be doing together, but there are other things that it's more appropriate for individuals to be doing. There's some things that could go either way. So, for example, we have the care ministry. That There's a meeting for that. And it's great to have some organized things so we make sure that things are going on. But that doesn't mean that you can't and shouldn't be doing caring for uh, uh, other people in the church just spontaneously or on your own. Uh, we hope that both of these things are happening. You can be doing mentoring with other people on your own, uh, helping with needs in the community, witnessing the people at your workplace or your neighbors. Now we caution with this. I mean, don't be tacky about it. 
I mean, if you know that there's a church ministry that's meeting on uh, you know, Wednesday morning, it's probably not a good time for you to plan you know, your own thing and uh, that's you know, at that same time. So don't be tacky, don't be a lone wolf, and, and don't do it out of an anti-authoritarian heart. But I think these are some of the uh, lessons that we can get from this first part. Let's go on. Let's read the second section. We say, okay, we need to avoid incidents of friendly fire. Okay, recognizing that we're on the same team with people that are, if they believe the Bible, they're committed to the gospel, they want Jesus Christ. But uh, what about those that are on the other team? You know, the non-Christians. So we can, we can call down fire on them, right? Well, let's read this next section. Starting with verse 51. When the, days, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to, to uh, tell fire to come down from heaven and to consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. This great episode that's recorded here. One more. We've been seeing all these in a row where the disciples uh, just come out looking like chumps. And it just makes us, it, again, it's uh, marks of authenticity that this isn't a made-up story to just make disciples in the early church look good. It's, it's history. This is what happened. But there's lessons that we draw from this. So here, you have this turning point in the, uh, the book of Luke. And so it says, this was now the time where Jesus set his face to Jerusalem. So most of his ministry here had been in, uh, in Galilee, the, the northern uh, kingdom of, of Israel. And there was the Samaritans. They were, that area was between the two and then uh, Judea, which was where Jerusalem was, and that was the southern part. And prior to this, Galilee is where Jesus did most of his ministry, but now he was setting his face towards Jerusalem. He was going to go there. And really the rest of uh, the book of Luke really chronicles that journey and a lot of teachings along the way. And he's heading there to go to Jerusalem. And at the end, he's going to be going to the, to the cross to fulfill this mission that he came to, uh, to die for sinners. And so he's heading down there, and they were going to go through Samaria. He sent his messengers ahead of him to try to make preparations, see places where they could stay during that journey going through their land. Now the Samaritans, we remember, the Jews and the Samaritans did not get along very well. They did not get along at all. There was lots of hostility you may think, oh, the Good Samaritan. The reason why the Good Samaritan story is a big deal is because it was surprising that a Samaritan would, would help uh, a Jewish person. Okay? The, Jew, the Samaritans were considered half-breeds. In the Old Testament times, uh, when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and they took away many of them and many were slaughtered, those that were left, they interbred with a lot of the the. the the Gentiles and pagans that were around. And so they became a mixed race. And so the Jews looked down upon them for that. They had turned away from Jerusalem as a place of worship. And they worshipped at Mount Gerizim. And their religion was kind of a mixture of Judaism and paganism. They only accepted the, the first five books of the Old Testament. And the Jews considered them heretics. 
In fact, when Jews had to go from, uh, from Judea to Galilee, or one way or the other, they would go all the way around, and even into Gentile land, and then come back, rather than to go through Samaria, because there was this much hostility. But Jesus is going to go through here, and it says that the people that they went to, to make preparations, they did not receive him, uh, because his face was set towards Jerusalem. You want to go there, that's our enemies. Why would you, uh, we're not going to help you to do this. And so James and John said, well, they've rejected you. All right, now we can, we can, should we call them fire? I think we've been given this authority. This would be fun to do. Let's call them fire. They're feeling very righteous about this. So let me say a lesson we can get from this. We talked about friendly fire. I think a message from this section is don't call down unfriendly fire, hostile fire, even against people that are on the other team. So we don't want friendly fire against people that are on the same team. But you see something else here. What about people that are on the other team? And Jesus, he rebukes them. He says, no, we're not, we're not doing that. I have to tell you as a side note, you know, these verses, there's things in here that it, it challenges me. There's things in these passages that, well, I'll tell you, I if it was just up to me just picking scriptures to go through, I probably in many years' time would not have picked these sections of scripture to talk about. There's probably a lot of other things that I would have picked. But I think that's one of the benefits of the, the primary way that, uh, that we handle scripture here and that uh, Pastor Nick and I believe that uh, the best way to have the church be healthy is to be working through books of scripture and to go through it uh, passage by passage, not skipping things, not leaving things out, not just hitting our favorite parts. And yeah, there will be uh, a few weeks from now, we will uh, finish up Luke 9, and we're going to take a little break from, from Luke, and we'll do the series on the five solas, and uh, probably a few things after that for a few months. Uh, but eventually, we're going to come back to Luke, and God willing, I hope to be able to preach through every verse in the Gospel of Luke. And the great thing that, ha- that happens when we do that is we're letting God tell us what we need to hear. Whether it's what you want to hear or what you don't want to hear. Whether if it's what I want to hear or what I don't want to hear either. Because God knows what we need to hear. And so here he's telling us, hey, this uh, friendly fire or unfriendly fire, this is not what he wants for us uh, right now. Jesus rebuked them. And it gets us to think about this issue. What is our heart's attitude towards unbelievers? Do we have this attitude of vengeance that, well, they've rejected Jesus, so time for them to, time for them to burn. You know, calling down God's vengeance upon them. What is our heart wish for people that are not just unbelievers, but that are antagonistic to us? That if they had their way, would want to put you in jail. They would want to do harm to you. And also, what is the tone that we have towards unbelievers, to those that are hostile, to those that are not on our team. See, we can be right, but we can also be wrong at the same time. J.C. Ryle said, it's possible to have much zeal for Christ and yet exhibit it in a most unholy and unchristian ways. Kent Hughes wrote, those on the road with Jesus, those who would pretend to share in his ministry must be merciful. There's no room for the preacher who by his fierce preaching on hell betrays a sick wish that people would end up there. Turn or burn, and I hope you do. 
If we are on the road with Jesus, we must be compassionate and forgiving like him. What is our heart attitude? What is our tone? And how does that come across as we talk with unbelievers? Here's one application for those of you that are on Facebook. What is our tone there? Does it show the, the compassion that Christ has? And there's a place for, for standing up for beliefs. There's a place for truth. But does it come across with a tone that Jesus might tell us we need to do some correction? This is not yet a day for judgment. That day is coming. But this is still a time for mercy. This is still a time for, for calling people to Jesus Christ so that they can be saved. And so, instead of calling down God's wrath on people, call down blessings upon your enemy, not judgment. That's what we're called to be doing, calling them down like, a, like an aircraft missile attack, but not, but not judgment, calling down blessings upon them. And I'll tell you this, if you are praying for people that are hostile to you, that are hostile to Christianity, it does a number of things. Well, first of all, God answers prayer, and so that's something we want to be doing because God can change hearts that we have no way of changing. And he can impact the hardest heart. There's no heart that is, that is too hard for him to impact. So yeah, be praying. Be praying for God to, to bless them. But uh, if you're praying for, for genuine good things for them, well, one, I believe it pleases God and it's Christ-like, but it's also good for your heart. It keeps you from developing a bitter or calloused heart. In Romans 12, 14 through 18, we read this. Bless those who persecute you. So yeah, call down blessings upon them. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It pleases God. It's Christ-like. It can change them. It's good for your heart. And remember, when we talk about blessings, we pay for genuine good things to happen to them, but the best blessing for anyone is to ask that God would grant them a changed heart. So not just temporary blessings, but the permanent blessings for them to know Jesus Christ, them to know forgiveness, that sometimes our hard hearts don't want them to have because we want them to pay for all eternity. But call them blessings upon them so that they would know Jesus Christ, that they would be forgiven. And you might say to yourself, well, I can't do that because I'm, I'm upset at these people and you don't know what this person did to me. Well, John, who is one you know, asking this, you read 1 John, later on his, his writings, he becomes known as the apostle of love. You see this huge change in his heart that Jesus uh, brings to his heart. And in Acts 8.25, it says that John and Peter, they took the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. God can work in your heart. God can change your heart. If you have a bitter heart that's having trouble praying good things for your enemies, be praying for God to soften your heart. And go through the process of praying for genuine good things, whether it's a non-Christian, whether it's another Christian that you have bitterness towards. If you start praying genuine good things for them, it will be good for your heart as well. And yes, there will be people that want to hurt us. That is true. There are people that want to, that want to bring persecution. Uh, a few weeks ago, there was news reported a, a tech millionaire who said he straight out wants to punish people that are not on board with the, the moral revolution. 
So another thing we need to remember is to leave vengeance to the Lord in his time. The passage from Romans, it continues. Verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's a symbol of purification, by the way. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the attitude we need to have. That passage, and also 2 Thessalonians 1, 5-10, it, it does talk about there is vengeance that's coming. And there's a way that it can release us from thinking we have to be the ones to bring the vengeance, to realize, yeah, vengeance, it is going to come. But our goal right now, our heart attitude needs to be mercy, that we're calling them out of uh, being, receiving this vengeance, that they would turn to Jesus Christ, that they could be saved as, as well. Our heart should hope and pray for their, for their redemption. 2 Timothy 2, 24, 26, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snares of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Our desire, even for our enemies, is to one day see them as brothers and sisters in Christ, to be with them in, in heaven, to be reconciled with them because they're reconciled to, to God through Jesus Christ. Our desire for them is, is not to see them as enemies in hell. Although, yes, God will bring justice. He will bring what is due. But our desire... Now is that they would come, that they would find mercy in Jesus Christ. And this is what Jesus Christ, what he sought for us. It says in Romans 5.10 that while we were still enemies, Christ, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. That isn't because we were good people. That wasn't because we took the initiative to be so, so wonderful. It's while we were still enemies of God, he took the initiative to die on the cross in our place. And so if we're following Christ, if we're trying to be Christ-like, that's the attitude we want to have too. That even people that they're still enemies, we want them to have the best blessing of all, to know Jesus Christ, to be forgiven of their sins, even sins against us, and to have them forever glorifying God, enjoying Him, and being in fellowship with them forever. And this is why Jesus was headed to Jerusalem. That's why He set His face to Jerusalem. He had a date with a cross to die for those who were at that time still his enemies. And that was us. And we praise God for his forgiveness. And let's ask him to help us to be Christ-like even when it's hard. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for these truths. And Lord, we know that uh, for all of us, there are probably people here that come to mind Maybe there are people that we're trying to push out of our mind because we don't want to have to apply this to them. But Lord, help us have hearts that are Christ-like. Help us to, to not have hearts that are full of envy, that are full of selfishness, or seeking our own glory or fostering bitterness. But instead, help us to have hearts that, that, that care for others, that want to see, even those that are, right now are opposed to you, 
for them to have the greatest good of all, for them to come to know Jesus Christ, for them to be reconciled to, to God through what Jesus Christ has done, and therefore reconciled to us as well. And we thank you so much for the, for the true gospel message and that through what you have done for us, Lord, Lord that, that we are saved, not because of our own goodness, but because you died to reconcile us while we were still enemies. Lord, I pray for anyone here that has not received that reconciliation. If anyone here is, is still an enemy of you, I pray that they would turn their heart towards you, that they would recognize the seriousness and the, the, the terribleness of their sin, and that they would turn and come to you and trust you alone as their Savior. I pray that they would do that now. If they have questions, I pray that they would come and talk to uh, myself or Pastor Nick or someone as well, but that they would leave reconciled. So we give you praise. You're a wonderful God, and we thank you for your deep love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.